lead us in our scripture, and then we'll ask Andrew Bittner to come bring a message. We have three scriptures, three uh, different readings this morning. The first one is from Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 17. And then we have Romans chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And then Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 4 through 6. In Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creations. For in him all things in heaven and earth were created things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Then reading from Romans, for this is what the promise said, about this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Nor is that all. Something similar happened to Rebecca when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac. And then reading from Ephesians, but God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right. It is great to be back worshiping with you again. Again, I think I've preached here about a half dozen times. Uh, before, Chad and I have been friends for a long time, so it's always a pleasure to come and fill in for him and to come and worship with you. I'm Andrew Bittner. Uh, I have been a licensed pastor within the United Methodist Church. I once pastored Buford United Methodist Church. Right now, I'm just working in the professional business world up at Taylor Corp. Um, basically, I lead a team of nerds. I, I can say this because I am a nerd. Uh, we do math problems uh, and actually write code to do math problems all day. So uh, it is always fun when I get to come back up here in the pulpit and share God's word with God's people. Uh, it was sort of funny. Uh, as we were singing the first hymn, which is... Uh, all Creatures of Our God and King, that's one of my very favorite, and it's written by St. Francis of Assisi. And St. Francis of Assisi was a monk who started the Franciscan Friars, it's a movement within the Catholic Church, uh, almost like 800 years ago. And what's really neat is last Sunday, I was sitting in church with my four youngest kids as we waited for my wife and two oldest kids uh, to fly back across the ocean on their way back from Italy. And during their time there, they went to Orvieto or to Assisi, um, and they got to see the church that uh, St. Francis helped rebuild. And as I drove in to preach this morning, I brought with me an icon. So it's just a crucifix, or it's a picture of Jesus, a painting of Jesus. And my daughter actually bought that at the church at Assisi. So it is kind of funny when God uh, knits all of those things together. So what I want to talk about today 
our trips, our travels. We're in the middle of summer. Sometimes we see that our friends aren't here on a Sunday morning. They're taking their family uh, maybe to go visit the in-laws or maybe uh, to a new destination or they're at a softball tournament, whatever it might be. Um, but those vacations are a special time. They're a special occasion for making memories with family. And uh, the first big trip we ever took as a family, uh, first big road trip, was to the Black Hills about five years ago. Now, uh, my wife and I, by the time we were 20, we were already married and had two kids, so we started out marriage broke, and so started out marriage cheap. And so then even as we, you know, got promoted and made some more money, even as we started to have some money, we still stayed for a long time cheap. Okay, so vacations were usually visiting grandma and grandpa up in the Twin Cities or maybe making a trip to go see the family farm up in North Dakota. Long road trips, big week-long vacations were just not, not a thing that we did. And so by this time, we had all six of our kids. Uh, Mary had spent months and months planning this huge trip to the Black Hills. So she was calling friends, seeing what are all the things that we should see, uh, what are all the, the tourist destinations that you just have to stop at, what are tips to make sure that the kids don't just lose it on the drive on the way there. And so it was a big deal. Um, I will admit I wasn't very involved in the preparations. I said I will pay for it. I don't want to know how much it costs. Just, show, just tell me where to be and, and when to be there. So. Uh, all the arrangements are ready. It was the middle of July. Uh, we all loaded into the minivan and we headed down on Highway 60. We stopped down in uh, Worthington. It was our first rest stop along the way. If you have six kids, you're lucky if you make it every two hours uh, between rest stops. And we stopped at a gas station just before we jumped on I-90. And so I go in with the five oldest kids uh, and we're in there, we're picking out some treats, everybody's got to use the restroom, and as we are getting ready to check out, one of the kids says, hey dad, can we get ice cream? I'm like, yeah, this is a vacation, this is our first big road trip, yeah, it's nine in the morning, but sure, we can, we can get ice cream. And, and, and for a moment there, right before we start, you know, a soft serve, right, so right before I'm starting to load up the ice cream cones, I'm like, where's Mary? Like, I'd think she'd be in here by now. We've been in here for 10, 15 minutes. Uh, but, you know, there's all these kids. They're clamoring for ice cream. So you're filling up one cone at a time. Don't think anything about it. Check out. And as we walked out the door, I very quickly discovered why it was that Mary hadn't come in yet. As we turned the corner, I saw her leaned up against our van door with a look of terror on her face and our baby at the time, Elizabeth, uh, on her hip. And I said, what's going on? And she said, the sliding door fell off. <laughs> so what had happened, if you own a Honda Odyssey, amazingly they haven't recalled this, but um, you know, we, we, we talked about cheap, right? right? Is, is, so we've always sort of taken the Dave Ramsey plan as it refers to vehicles, and we sort of have bought ones that we didn't have to take out a loan on, and we, we drive them until we drive them into the ground, right? And we thought, oh, this has a shelf life of another 18 months. We, we can definitely drive a couple thousand miles on the way to the Black Hills and back. Wrong. Uh, so so, so uh, a Honda Odyssey's doors, so over time, when the door starts to close, it starts to get stuck. And there's a sensor that says, oh, if it gets stuck, stuck just kick it back. So what you had to do with this particular van was sort of help it along. So what 
you would do is you'd grab the handle and kind of pull on it until it would finally close. Well, my, I don't know if my wife had been working out or, or what it was, um, but uh, she just, she followed the plan. All the kids had gotten out. She was holding baby on her hip and she, she pulled and it came right out of the rails. And it was just hanging there. And here we were in sort of this moment of despair, like two and a half hours into this vacation that had been planned for at three, four months, months in advance, kind of our first big trip, a chance to really make memories with our kids, and it had literally been derailed in the first two and a half hours. We didn't know what to do. Do we try to limp it to a mechanic uh, with you know, trying to hold the door shut. Do we have to call a tow truck? Do we call Mary's really handy dad and ask him uh, to drive down and wait at the, the, the rest stop? And as we're trying to contemplate what our options are, this guy walks over from the gas pumps to us and he says, you look like you could use some help. And I, we're like, yeah. And he said, well, what happened? And we explained what happened with the door. And he says, well, I have a tool chest in my camper, so l let's give this a try. So what happened is he and his wife came over, tool chest in hand, we handed the baby to his wife, and we proceeded to use his ratchet set to detach the door from, basically detach the bolts that held the door into the rails. We reset the, the connections into the rails, bolted the door back on, quietly slid it again, and told our kids never to open that door throughout the course of the trip. <laughs> Uh, as the door shut, the wife, the woman, she said, I think we better pray together. I mean, it was, sorry, I mean, I always get choked up even re uh, recounting it. it. And so we all held hands in the middle of the Shell's parking lot, and we prayed for a safe trip. It was just this amazing experience. As soon as they got back, in, got, got back into our camper, they took our phone number first, so in case the door fell off again, <laughs> uh, that, that they could come and help, we, we sat down in our car, and Mary and I just bawled, like we were bawling. If that's, their being there in the right place at the right time is not just amazing in and of itself, but it's amazing because of everything that happened, had to happen to put those two people, to put Jay and Michelle, uh, at that point, at that time. They weren't from Minnesota, they were from central Ohio. So you had to think of every rest stop and every you know, place they had to stop along the way so that the timing there was perfect. So they would be there with us at that moment in our most desperate need. And what was amazing is, is even along the trip we ran into them again, and they would text us every few days just to say, hey, is everything still going okay? Is there anything that we can help you with? Because, you know, they were on their way to the Black Hills too. And it was a great trip, not just because of all the memories that we made, but because there was just this incredible sense that God was there in the midst of, of this trip, on this journey. And so whenever I think back on that story, upon that experience, I always say God sent his A-team. Jay and Michelle, these people from the middle of Ohio who happened to be going to the Black Hills the same time as us and met us at that, that rest stop um, in Worthington, they were God's A-team. So why, why do I tell you this? 
is each and every one of you, as our readings tell us today, have been elected or chosen in Christ. Not by accident, not by luck, not by random chance. We're told that we are predestined in Christ. And what that means is that before the foundation of the world, God chose to send his son, and then he decided to incorporate us, basically group us or make us family together, not just in Christ, but with Christ. And so what that means is that as God's people, as God's family, that everything that we've experienced, and some of it we probably would prefer not to have gone through, so maybe we should say everything that we've been redeemed from and all the ways in which God has saved us, whether in little ways with doors falling off our cars or saving us from the depths of our sins when we've hit rock bottom or removing us from situations of oppression or abuse, all of that rescue, all of that freedom is not just by chance. It's been designed since the beginning. And so your life, your rescue, your being here, your hearing God's word is not an accident. We're told in uh, one of our readings here this morning, it's the one from Colossians, and I'm just going to read it uh, again for you. Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, so for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and, and invisible. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and he is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. There was a theologian, ironically a Franciscan theologian a long time ago, like about 900 years ago, and his name was John Duns Scotus. Okay, basically all that meant is he was John from Scotland. Okay. And uh, I remember growing up, and there was a Looney Tunes episode that would show up on Saturday mornings, probably about every six weeks, and Bugs Bunny's uh, nephew, who was very naughty, uh, would get put in a dunce cap and put in the corner um, to reflect upon his actions, right? So we, we've heard of this concept of a dunce cap. Uh, John Dunce Scotus is where this comes from. He was actually a genius, not a dummy, um, but later theologians didn't like what he had to say, so they, they basically made dunce an insult. So what is this guy, 800 years ago, a follower of St. Francis of Assisi, someone who loved Jesus very deeply, have to do with us here today? Well, again, I, I think John Duns Scotus was a genius, and I think his best idea was this idea that he called the absolute primacy of Christ. What, that's just a fancy way to say that before God planned to do anything, anything at all, make the world, let humanity fall into sin, um, you know, send, send Moses and the prophets and things like that, before he even decided that he would say, let there be light. He decided that God the Son would become a human and would come into this world. And so what that means is that everything else that has to do with creation has to do with Jesus. 
And so there's a place called Palestine or a place called Israel because that was the place where Jesus of Nazareth was going to walk. And there was a Sea of Galilee that was created by God so that Jesus would have a place to teach and find his disciples. And there was a mountain upon which he could have his sermon on the mount. And there were apostles who could go and spread his message. And there were places like Rome and Spain and India and Syria that God would create so that the message of Jesus could go out. And there was a planet called Earth so that all these places would have a planet on which to be. And there was a sun that was created to provide light so you could grow crops and all these people could live. And there was a universe in which this solar system would exist to reveal the majesty of what God was doing. And even on this little speck of dirt in the vastness of the universe, that would be the place where God would send his own son so that we could understand more deeply than anything else the love of Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, not only is nothing by accident, that means that nothing happens apart from Christ. We oftentimes think that we can only reflect God's glory, we can only reflect God's nature, God's love when we're winning, when things are going well when we have a good handle on our sins, when our relationships with other people are healthy, when we're being treated in the way that God would desire for us to be treated. But it's only when we're winning, when we're lifted up, that God has a purpose for us, or God is on our side, or that we can reflect God's glory. But the person who all of this has been built around Jesus Christ at the moment where we see his love the most on the cross, was called a loser. I I don't think anyone can say that Jesus upon the cross was winning, that he was beloved, that he was treated in the way that God would desire for him to be treated, that he was being counted as successful or someone that we would choose to be like. And yet we're told at various points throughout Scripture is that is the place and that is the moment when God most demonstrates who he is and he most demonstrates to us, his people, his family, how much he loves us. Now that is not to say that God desires our suffering. That's not to say that God desires for people to go through horrible violence or abuse What that means or what that should provide us is a sense of assurance that even along the road as we're journeying through this life, even when it seems that not only the doors but the tires and everything else and every piece seems to be falling off and the engine has fallen out and the transmission has given out, that's when God is most with us. That's when God makes himself most known. It seems upside down because that's not the way the world works. The world revels in glory and success and fame. But we follow a God, a king, who is with us in our weakness, in our failure, in our sin, in our suffering and in our need. 
So what impact does that have on our life? If we have this sort of king, if we live in this type of world that is all centered and built around Jesus, how should we live our lives differently? Let's make it really practical. God's world is not an accident. Okay? It's planned. God himself, the creator of the universe, had a plan. This didn't happen just willy-nilly. He's not making it up as he goes. And how did God, the creator of the universe, infinity itself, the source of wisdom itself, how did he start? He started his plan with Jesus. So if the creator of the universe is willing to start his plan with Jesus, why wouldn't we? If the plans, as important as they are, that we make have to do with our work or have to do with our children or the keeping up of our household or the tending of our farm or, you know, the sustainment and health of our business, all of those things are incredibly important. But I think we can all admit they don't have to do with, like, the redemption of the entire world, right? Very important, but maybe at a different level. If God's going to start his plan with Jesus, what excuse do we not have to? If God starts each day with Jesus, what excuse do we have not to? And this doesn't necessarily have to look like a legalistic practice. Oh, I read my Bible every day. Or I remember to pray every day. Or I am doing a harsh and critical evaluation against the Ten Commandments of myself every day. Okay, we, we can twist this. We can turn it into a legalistic practice where uh, either we feel really good about ourselves because we do a really good job at that, or we start to doubt our own salvation because a lot of us do a really bad job at, at that. But what it means is it means we live our life as if Jesus has actually won as if his crucifixion actually not only meant something, but that it actually accomplished our redemption. That our resurrection wasn't, or that his resurrection wasn't just an event that happened 2,000 years ago, but it is something that affects our life, that that victory affects our life today. The reading from Ephesians, and Ephesians is my favorite book in the Bible, so uh, if I ever come and preach here, you can probably assume there's going to be a reading from Ephesians. But this is my favorite passage in the Bible, and we read, we read it this morning. It was part of our Lectio Divina. I'm going to read a little, a little excerpt from it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, past tense, even when, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, past tense, alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It is accomplished and raised up, past tense, with him and seated and God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have been loved, we have been saved, we have been raised up, and we have been seated with Jesus to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You know, when, if we want to get into a grammar lesson, we call that tense perfect tense or completed tense. 
And so it's not just something that has happened in the past and it's not relevant anymore. It means, as Jesus said, it has been accomplished or it has been finished. And so we already have new life. We already have been saved. We already, even as we're sitting in our pews here this morning, in some way that our mind can't wrap our we can't wrap our mind around, is we sit with God, with Jesus, at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, now. Jesus has already won. He has already been enthroned as king, and we somehow rule with him. I'll tell you what, I don't always feel like I'm winning, but it But I love this passage because it is a reminder that regardless of what my current circumstances are, whether it is a problem that is just part of the fallenness of the world or because of my foolishness, a problem that I've inflicted on myself or I'm dealing with the unjust behavior of another person, as it even in my losing, even in my failure, somehow we're ruling with Christ. How would we live our lives if we actually believed that we'd won? have one, that it's completed. So there were stories in the 50s and the 60s and even up into the 70s where fishermen and surveyors and geologists who were you know, doing their respective work in the Southern Pacific is that they would sometimes come upon these small islands and they would start being attacked by, by these people who were Japanese. Not groups, but like individuals. And so they would get back on their boats, they would go get the authorities, those authorities would then go back onto the island and extract that person out. And what they would find in these situations is that these people were soldiers from World War II who had refused to surrender and even 20, 30 years later were still acting as if the war was still on, that they were still fighting for the emperor, that they were still fighting for the nation of Japan and their people. Just think how silly that is. That 20, 30, some cases 40 years later, these soldiers were still fighting as if the war was still on. It might sound goofy, but when we believe that God has withdrawn his presence from us, even in our sin, even when we feel very far from God, and maybe, maybe even when it's our own fault, is we, we cry and we moan and we think, God, where are you? Or we look at our world and we see the problems that it entails, whether those are political or social or economic or wars raging all over the world, and we think, oh God, did you withdraw your presence? Are you with us? Are you ever going to show up? and make this right? We're acting like those Japanese soldiers. We're not just doing it 20 or 30 or 40 years later, we're doing it 2,000 years later. It's like we're acting like skeletons who are coming out of our caves to go try to fight this war that's already been won. And so if we ask what does it mean to be a dunce for Christ, What does it mean to actually place Jesus at the beginning of all our plans? It's much more than praying every day or reading your Bible every day or doing an evaluation of your behavior every day. It is stepping into this world knowing that Jesus has won, that we have assurance. We as people who are Methodists and 
I'm not going to put us up on, on a pedestal, but one of the reasons that John Wesley created the Methodist movement is so that Christians would have an assurance of Jesus' victory, that in the lived details of their lives, they would know that Jesus the King is sitting on his throne now and that we have won with him. I remember being a little kid and when my parents would give me an attaboy or, I, or were really proud of something that I had done, I'd feel really good and I would feel really free as a kid. But when they were mad or I'd done something dumb or maybe they were being unfair, you sort of wondered, are they still there? Are they still on, are they still on my side? Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' victory and the fact that we're sitting with him is the promise that we don't need to have that fear. That whether we are winning or whether we are losing, whether we've been good or whether we've been bad, whether we are thriving or whether we are suffering, and very unjustly, that God's presence, God's love for us is a guarantee. We win with him, we succeed with him, we are loved by him. And so we can step into our work and we can step into our parenting and we can step into running our farms or tending our businesses and think, I can do this because Jesus has already won. And even if I fail, even if I sin, Jesus has already forgiven me or Jesus will, already pick, Jesus will pick me back up and clean me back off. And the world may look at us, look at us and say, what dummies? <laughs> What dunces, like your business is failing, or up until last night, it hasn't rained in six weeks, or man, you were a jerk uh, to, to that other person, or man, now you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I really, really blew it with parenting my kids. But we can step forward knowing that Jesus loves us, that he has already won, and because of that, it's a guarantee of his affection and his presence with us. So my challenge to you is knowing God's guaranteed love for you, are you willing to put him at the beginning of your plans and be a dummy or a dunce for Christ? Amen.